Welcome back, everyone. Okay. <laughs> you, like, gave a hezzy, and I was like, all right, I'm gonna go for well, it. I was hesitating because someone was wrinkling something. Alec. Right. <laughs> Make no more sounds. Ready? Welcome back to season two of Fly on the Wall. My name is Christian Mesa. My name's Aaron Bennett. My name is Justin McCartney. And we are sitting in the GU Politics office. It is our junior year of college, and you guys are still listening to us, so shout out to you. We back! Welcome to season two. So we want to tell you to subscribe to our podcast. This couldn't be more critical. We need your love on iTunes. We can't sustain a podcast without your love on iTunes. So make sure you subscribe to us and share us with your friends, your parents, your families, uh, any other sort of relationship that you may be in. Uh, <laughs> that person or group of people will want to listen to our podcast. So make sure Can't you figure that. out what you should next text that girl you talked to last week in Leo's. Tell it to subscribe to Fly on the Wall. Guess what? I'm telling you, it is the great pickup line of the century. Also, check us out on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter and Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram. And Instagram, <laughs> we're everywhere. So check us out. You also start to see our flyers around campus. We're going to have a bigger on campus presence this year. So we'll be tabling, um, all that kind of stuff. Stop by, hey, say hi. We love to make friends. We're good people, more or less. And I don't know if you were able to uh, take advantage of this, but we actually had the word of the week at Wingo's, our favorite DC wing joint. Huge. It's huge. It was monumental. As I was walking over, a good friend of the pod, Connor Maitner, stopped me and was like, dude, how did you pull off that Wingo stunt? I don't know, but we did. And it's just so we can uh, bring you better quality podcasts by getting our name out there. So share us, love us, tweet us, listen. Yeah. So we've got a huge opening episode for you today. Uh, our guest on this episode is Congressman Patrick Murphy. Uh, he is a two-term congressman who ran for Senate in Florida in 2016 and lost to Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, and he is really excited to be on the pod with us. Uh, he is also a fellow at the Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service this semester. He's running a discussion group on Monday from 2 to 3.30 in the GU Politics office about being a millennial in this day and age. Which is funny, because that's exactly what we're going to ask him about on this podcast. Wow, what a coincidence. It's almost as if we are part of the Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service. Uh, okay, so we have a couple of things we want to run through before uh, we get into this podcast. Uh, a couple of things that are new, a couple of things that you are going to expect. Uh, we still have Tweet of the Week, don't worry. Uh, that did not go. Before we get into the actual interview, uh, so we just wanted to start by saying, uh, you know, when we started this podcast, we had a lot of grand ideas, and it's really exciting to get back to, you know, that core mission uh, for season two of, you know, being a fly on the wall uh, in some of these big, important moments in Congress. So you'll hear us saying a lot in season two, uh, take us inside the room. And a lot of that is so we can really get a good understanding of what happened in these big rooms uh, where these incredibly important and uh, incredibly influential uh, decisions were made in politics. Uh, so that's really going to be the core of what we're doing for this season two of Fly on the Wall. Yeah, and what we like to tell our audience and when you pitch the pod to other people is that, you know, we're not your typical news uh, site or news article. You know, we don't care about the what. We don't care about the uh, why. We care about the how. We want to know how things are getting done in politics, and we want to give you that level of access that you can't get anywhere else. And I think that this season is going to be rededicated toward that mission in particular. We put a lot of work this summer, the three of us, into crafting the podcast to better get towards that mission to make it, you know, much more exciting for our audience. We met with CNN reporter Brianna Keeler, who's a friend of geopolitics, who gave us some incredible interview tips. So well, we're definitely going to be incorporating them into the new season. Shout out, Brianna. Thanks for your help. We're not getting spun anymore. Thanks, Brianna. <laughs> We also met with a Can He Do That podcast team at the Washington Post. Allison Michaels and her team were an incredible help for uh, some work on the back end of our podcast, working on the technical aspects, um, how to edit. So hopefully all of that will be noticed in some of our upcoming episodes for season two. Yeah, we've also got a couple of really interesting segments that we're going to be doing. Uh, so you'll see us uh, jumping in in the middle of the interviews uh, in between you know, certain rooms that we're uh, going to be getting into. Uh, and you're going to hear our voices and we're going to be doing some really fun things on this podcast. Uh, so some things you know, uh, like we'll be talking about political fun facts. If you guys remember Bushu Suru from last <laughs> season, uh, we'll be doing some interesting uh, politicians as people. If you guys remember Jason Chaffetz breaking his leg l from last season, uh, 
all really interesting things that we're going to be doing in between segments. And most importantly, we have new microphones. I've been talking about this since we got them a couple uh, a couple episodes ago in the summer, but like they're fully functional. We are in a more or less soundproofed room. No, the answer is less. Um, <laughs> but like sound quality is going to go way up. I'm super excited. Yeah, definitely will be really interesting. You'll be able to hear us a lot better, which is fun. So bottom line, we are so excited to be back for season two. So excited to be back on campus here at Georgetown. We hope you're excited to be back with your fly on the wall team. And we are going to jump right into it with our first tweet of the week of season two. Huge budget. Here this week's tweet of the week comes from Taylor Trogdon, who is a senior scientist at the Storm Surge Unit for the National Hurricane Center. Uh, his tweet, I am at a complete and utter loss for words looking at Irma's appearance on satellite imagery. There's a photo that accompanies this. Actually, it's a GIF. I lied. Um, but really just shows the like massive scale that Irma's coming. So thoughts out to all the people of Florida. Please stay safe. Listen to your elected officials. Evacuate if it's appropriate. Uh, and yeah. Do, yeah. We, do we have strong listenership in Florida? Uh, we recorded a podcast in Florida. We so did we record a podcast fact, in Florida. Actually, where uh, the storm is likely to hit in Jupiter. We, we were right there. Also, other fun fact, Congressman Patrick Murphy represented parts of Jupiter. Wow. He did? What yeah. a great way to... Oh, we're not segueing. We're not segueing yet. No, we aren't segueing it. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, anytime I hear a scientist say, I am at a loss, I'm a little worried. It's a big problem. Yeah. yeah. Huge problem. Okay, so next segment we have is... Ooh, this one's mine. Can okay. I do it? Can I do it? Yeah, go do for it. it. Cool. So this is a segment that got rave reviews when we did it over the summer. Is we're bringing it back. We're going to try to make it a regular segment. It's called "What Grinds Your Gears." <laughs> You're going to find some sound effects. Uh, basically, now we know that. Okay. In full disclosure, Family Guy did something similar in 2006. They did one episode, and it wasn't that great. We could not have been expected to know about that because we were like nine at the time. So we're just going to run with it anyway. So no big deal. So grinding your gears, that's now a fly on the wall thing. Uh, so our topic today is being a young person in a professional environment. What are the challenges there? And we're going to open it up to the floor to talk about what grinds your gears. Oh my God, me first, me first. Go, Go for it, Christian. Okay. Uh, what really grinds my gears about being a young professional in Washington specifically, uh, but also a young professional in a professional environment uh, is watches. Okay. So <laughs> watches. I am a college student, okay? I do not have the money to spend on a nice watch, nor do I have the money to spend on multiple watches. So it's very difficult for me to match watches to my suits. And it's like a number one problem in my life because you can't wear a brown watch, like a brown uh, strapped watch with a black suit. You just look like an idiot. That but I don't, so bad for you. Okay, yeah, but I also don't have the money to spend on multiple watches that look nice. But you see all these like, nice people who have been involved in like 30 years who have super nice watches and i'm like wow mine costs like 20 dollars at target so that's what really grinds my gears i'd say just the really steep on one hand learning curve because there's a lot of skills to working in a professional environment that a college environment just can't necessarily prepare you for um just because it's a different world out there and that's something you have to kind of you know put your time in put your head down do the work and eventually you'll get to a position where you are doing more exciting work, you know, meeting with more exciting people. But on the other side of that, I think there also is a really special perspective and kind of skill set that college students can offer that isn't always appreciated, especially right off the bat when you're a young person working in a professional environment. Uh, and that can be frustrating as well when your talents or your skills uh, or your perspective isn't always recognized or held at the same level as someone who's been there more more time or more experience put, than you. Put me back in, coach. I have an idea. So go for it. Have you ever noticed, like, in these professional environments, it seems like the more senior people just sort of, like, automatically know how things happen and, like, what things are right? And, like, at least with me, like, I would have an idea and it would, like, get passed at the chain of command and, like, it would come back down and look totally different. And then, like, it no, doesn't matter how great of an idea I thought I had. It's always better when it comes back down. Because the people <laughs> who are, like, actually do this for, like, money and have done it forever, they, like just know and i think that's just like really frustrating because like i want to like know but i know that i can't know until i'm like older and like actually have that experience for the record uh because we're on a podcast aaron is doing this hand motion every time he says no. <laughs> well because i feel like there's like a certain <coughs> no uh, there's like a the, yeah no i totally get they, you they like just you know they know I, oh it's not coming across they just like a quick addendum to the challenges of being a young person in a professional environment is lack of pay also i don't know how i missed that one rt and especially too like 
I can't like there's only so many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches I can make in a summer, <laughs> right? And we like did a good job. I made a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches this summer. I ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich pretty much every day. Want to know why? Because I go to Georgetown and it's expensive to go here. And then as well, uh, it's expensive to eat like a ten dollar meal for lunch every day. Like I love you, sweet green, but come on. <sighs> that okay? I'm changing my answer. That's what grinds my gears. Yeah, I like this one better too. Did you ever notice that like the senior people in the office like they don't like had their lunch plan set for like a while before yeah. and like every day they just go out and eat whatever they wanted i'm just like how do you have that much money do you think that patrick murphy when he first came into congress was the kid sitting alone eating peanut butter and jelly all by himself he was in from the one cafeteria? of those people we saw in Dunkin donuts i hope by the time he was in congress he wasn't eating a peanut butter and jelly every day but like <laughs> maybe his interns were <laughs> well metaphorically speaking Patrick Murphy was once the new kid on the block, and being a millennial in Congress has its own set of challenges. So what we want to do with this episode is sort of explore that, you know, what it's like to be in the room that is literally the capital of the United States and the office building surrounding it, uh, and talking about uh, with him how he navigated that new environment and the decisions he made and how that impacted his experience on the Capitol. Yeah, he's a really fascinating guy to talk to. I think you guys are really going to enjoy uh, our conversation with him. Uh, so without further ado, we'll be quiet and we'll let Congressman Patrick Murphy talk. Congressman Patrick Murphy, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we are really excited to have you here. Uh, you are only our second elected official. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this is this Who is a big the first. Deal. Uh, uh, the first is Governor Martin O'Malley. Oh man, it's gonna be tough to compete with. Semester, yeah. <laughs> uh, as a fellow here, so we had to grab him first. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. We're All right. Uh, let's dive right in. So our first question for you is, talk to us about that decision to run for Congress. I mean, you went from being a businessman to jumping right into politics. So talk to us about why you would make such a seemingly crazy decision to some of us. <laughs> yeah, my, my family still thinks I drank some bad water along the way. <laughs> uh, it's just kind of interesting. And, and look, everyone has their own unique route into public service. There's no question. But uh, I grew up in a household that you know, kind of always told me, you know, son, look, you know, vote who, who you think is best. My dad was a registered Republican. My mom was an independent, but was raised really more around Republicans. Our family business is construction. It's more of a Republican leaning industry in, in, in South Florida where I grew up. So that was sort of always my mindset and uh, grew up, you know, uh, getting to meet certain public officials along the way, but never thought of myself in that position. And it was really my experiences through life that led me to want to do it, starting off with being a CPA working at Deloitte & Touche. Uh, it was very sort of monotonous, boring work as an auditor, which I didn't think about it at the time, but that was all because of what had happened in, you know, start with, with WorldCom and Enron, all these companies, you know, imploding, and then Congress making action, right? right, trying to prevent it from happening. So I saw what was intended by Congress versus what was implemented every day. And it was frustrating because it wasn't... Uh, I don't think what they really wanted to do, what Congress wanted to do. So I saw that disconnect. Fast forward, uh, BP oil spill happens. Then I start a little environmental company, get some oil skimmers, move to New Orleans, start putting these skimmers out to work. And again, I see government, you know, trying to get involved. I saw this, this terrible spill, saw the devastation, and then this response that I thought could have been much better. Right. So my eyes were really open to government. Then you got 20, you know, 10, this Tea Party movement sort of simultaneously happening. And I'm watching politics and I'm watching this movement. I'm like, there's no way these guys are going to win. I mean, come on, that's crazy. And in my backyard is this guy, Congressman Alan West, who ends up winning in a Democratic-leaning district. And I'm sure you all have seen some of the stuff, some of his rhetoric, but I mean, he was one of the more outspoken members of Congress probably in our history and ends up winning convincingly. Mm. And I said, holy cow. And I'm, you know, with my friends, probably like you all, uh, you know, I don't believe this happened. We're talking about issues and going back and forth. And, you know, my one of my best friends saying, you know, Murph, dude, do something about it. Quit, you know, quit bitching and complaining, you know, get out there and do something. What am I going to do? You know, and anyway, after about three months, finally convinced me, well, why don't you, uh, you know, why, why don't we run for Congress? So it was, I mean, as simple as being in my buddy's conference room in his office and we got like a whiteboard, we printed out all the stats for the, the, the seats in Congress in South Florida. <laughs> and it was like, all right, look, you can't run against Ileana Ross Layton and uh, these Miami seats, to be blunt, you pretty much have to be, you know, Cuban American uh, down there to win. Uh, they were very heavily Hispanic and, and, and Cuban. Uh, I'm Patrick Aaron Murphy, about as white as a kid, right? And I was like, all right, well, that's not going to work. Say, yeah. So, uh, and Alan West had really gotten under my skin for what he stood for. 
And it was a, a crazy move because he was probably the most well, I know he was the most well-funded member of Congress outside of Speaker Boehner at the time and had so much notoriety on Fox News every night. It was like going against, you know, He-Man. And said, well, you know what? Hey, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm all in. <laughs> so uh, ended up running, you know, against Alan West. But before I'd made that decision, an interesting sort of caveat there, I was still a registered Republican. And because that's what my dad was. And so when I registered it, you know, whatever, when I was, you know, young so if he's a republican i guess i'm a republican he's my best friend my dad's my mentor and everything why not and i always had sort of fiscally responsible socially progressive values i just never thought about changing my party or um and that tea party movement i you know i'm not the only one to say this has obviously shifted the republican party way to the right so i first had the decision i'm gonna run for congress and well i gotta change my party do i want to run as an independent that's unrealistic so went ahead and changed my party affiliation uh, which at the time was very was difficult because it was one of the things used against me, of course, in my primary because mm-hmm. I was ended up running against Lois Frankel, the mayor of West Palm Beach, very known, strong Democrat, served in the state legislature. Um, and, and so we're butting heads. She's calling me a fake Democrat. And now that ended up probably being one of my biggest assets because Alan West moved districts. So he ended up moving north about you know 50 miles to a different district because of redistricting. So I had the decision, do I want to stay in this race against Lois Frankel in a safe Democratic seat and have a tough primary or move to run against Alan West in a you know, coin toss of a seat, but against a really tough opponent mm-hmm. and decided to do that. Yeah. And that attack on me of being a, like a fake Democrat or whatever became one of my biggest assets because what really important of helping us win that election wasn't just the Democrats that turned out, were those moderate Republicans that said, no way, no how am I going to vote for this Tea Party you know, guy, Alan West. Uh, so it's funny how, you know, the, the thing that you, you're most scared of ends up being right. one of the biggest assets. And thanks so much for that context. I know it's really helpful to see your journey. You know, I, I'm sure there are a lot of Georgetown students, college students, uh, and people in general who listen to the pod who, you know, have always had an interest in public service and politics, but, you know, don't see themselves getting there. So your path is really helpful in that regard. Uh, but just to dive a little bit deeper, uh, when you entered the race, when you made the decision to run, did you expect that your race would get as much profile uh, as it did? It was you got national attention for uh, for that first race, and uh, it was very expensive as well. So, how shocking or jarring was it to be in that environment with limited political experience up to that point? You know, I always joke with my family and friends. Had I known what I was getting myself into, I probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> right? I was just like naive enough to right. to not know any better or different, and that was the only thing in politics I ever knew was a race that was really expensive and, and really high profile. Right. So uh, I, I guess, you know, you kind of pinch yourself once in a while, like, holy cow, is this happening to me uh, along the way? But you're moving at such a high pace. You don't, I mean, I didn't I probably regret it, but I, I didn't take the time to reflect on that. It was just go, 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 sure. looking forward all the time. And had a lot to learn. I mean, I look back at some of my mistakes and stumbles along the way and my most embarrassing speeches and, you know, being nervous to speak in front of people. And next thing you know, I'm speaking in front of these huge crowds with the president and what <laughs> is going on. So uh, it certainly wasn't expected. Um, the, the money in the race, money politics, of course, is, is, is terrible and, and something I'm very passionate about changing. But um, we kind of went against the, the, the odds there in, in a big way. Alan West had something like $20 million wow. to R4, maybe four and a half. Right. Uh, typically... I don't know the number, but I think something like ninety percent of, of people with the most money win right, mm. in, in, in elections. Uh, the good news for us was the law of diminishing returns in politics. Once you hit a certain point, and every race has its number, but in our particular congressional race, it was probably about four or five million dollars. That once you did that, you've sort of hit in that saturation point. That people knew your message, they knew you know what you stood for. Doing one more radio ad or one more mailer just didn't matter. They already knew who you. They already made up their mind on right. you. So we were lucky that we were able to hit that point despite being outspent by, by so much uh, by Alan West. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, so let's jump into uh, the first room, as we like to call it. Uh, so you won that election. Uh, congratulations <laughs> against, uh, you know. Spoiler alert, dude. Don't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us about, you know, you walk into Congress on the first day. Talk to us about what your main issues or your main priorities were when you stepped in. You know, what issues did you decide to champion? What bills did you decide to champion? And talk to us a little bit about how you came to that decision and, and how you decided what you were going to focus on your first term. Yeah, well, uh, and glad you asked this because I went to Congress, uh, I'd say, very naive. Right? I went there 
first of all, humbled and honored to serve my district. Uh, I was elected, you know, at the, at the time, the youngest member of Congress and uh, immediately said, look, I'm here uh, to, to change the world. Right. I, I really care about the macro issues. At the end of the day, that's why I ran, ran for the Congress. If you rewind back to that time frame, there was a lot of talk around the grand bargain. If you remember that, there was a lot of talk. Joe Biden was working with the, the, the Congress about getting this big deal. They're talking about the debt. They were talking about the wasteful spending. They were talking about tax reform. Come this big, big deal to put it together. So I get elected to Congress. I'm thinking about these big picture things. And what's the first thing they do? They separate the two parties. They say, you know, hey, hey Patrick, look, you're a Democrat. You're going over here with the other Democrats for two weeks. And, you know, all the Republicans are going to go over here for two, three weeks. And, you know, imagine starting college and they separate, you know, the, the freshman class into two groups. If you ever have a chance of getting to know somebody and breaking down those barriers, those artificial barriers, I would say, it's in the beginning before you, uh, you know, get too in deep. And they separate us. That's the craziest, dumbest thing I've ever heard of. So I was lucky enough through a friend of a friend who was a freshman Republican. We go to dinner one night and we start talking and, and we realized that we were actually agreeing on more than we disagreed on. And he was a tea partier, but we agreed on a lot of issues. I said, wow, well, if we can do this, why can't other people? So we ended up starting this group called United Solutions and got a pretty good amount of the freshman class to sign up to talk about our own version of a grand bargain to get all these big picture things going. And we decided the easiest thing to do and, and something important to us was cutting the wasteful spending. My background was in you know, CPA and audit. Let's go find the waste. So we find hundreds of billions of dollars of wasteful, duplicative, and fraudulent government spending. And we get some people to co-sign and we're getting ready to drop this bill, introduce it. And I get a, a, like a message from my, my Republican counterpart and he says, hey Murph, look, I need a couple weeks here. Something came up, you give me a week. Okay, fine. A couple of weeks go by. He said, ah, one more week, one more week. Next thing you know, a month and a half goes by. Hey, what's going on? Why, why aren't we dropping this? What's the deal? And I see him out one night in an event and, and he's having a beer and he says, look, Murph, here's the deal. Uh, the speaker found out I was trying to work with you. Uh, deal is we want to beat you in this next election. You're on our target list. If we were to do this build together, it might actually make you look good. It might give you a good headline back home. We just can't do that. Uh, and, wow. and, and, and he said, if I were to do it, that I was going to be dropped from my committee and they were going to block me from raising money. So he basically said to me, Murph, look, love to do it. But bottom line is I got to wait like five years so I can work with you on anything. So, you know, have fun. And that to me was like took the wind right out of my sails. Are you kidding me? I'm here working 100 hour weeks, working my tail off to try to get something done. I don't care if it's a Republican or Democratic idea. You right. solve a problem. And he won't do it for political reasons. Are you kidding me? And that was a, kind of a turning point for me early on uh, that said, look, if there is a bigger conversation on tax reform or infrastructure or ACA fixes, whatever, I will be there. However, I'm not going to go spin my wheels and beat my head against the wall. And I'm going to focus on local issues. Uh, so to answer your question directly, it, I went in with this macro mindset of macro big issues. And then I shifted it more to local issues. Um, simultaneously with that, we had some major environmental problems in our district with massive rainfall and, and uh, some pretty bad uh, discharges out of Lake Okeechobee and got really involved there. And we were blessed to work with the administration to get quite a bit of funding and the Army Corps of Engineers uh, to get some funding. So that became a, a pretty big deal for me uh, in, in the district. Uh, you said you were one of the you know, youngest elected uh, members of Congress. Talk to us about like what that dichotomy is like. You know, you're coming into an institution that is almost universally, you know, old guys. Uh, so what was that like, you know, in your first couple of days in Congress to be, you know, a millennial in Congress? Yeah, no, I, I get that question so much. And, and people usually ask me, say, you know, did people, did they basically, did they disrespect you because you were so young and they've mm -hmm. been around? That's one of the really interesting things of Congress. I mean, maybe they talked behind my back, bad, <laughs> but to my like face, <laughs> right? But to, to my face, they were always everyone was great, Republican or Democrat. To your face is always uh, they were always pretty respectful, and there is a, a decent amount of diversity in the Congress with backgrounds as, as educators, as scientists, as you know, of course, a lot of lawyers, um, and different walks of life. Um, it, you know, one of the not to get too far off subject here, but one of the, the big problems with our Congress right now is the gerrymandering. You could even argue it's the biggest problem that's led to the gridlock. But what's that? what that's done is elected members of Congress that represent a very specific group of people in many ways uh, that might have completely opposite views from you. 
but because of that, they end up respecting your views and what you come and what you, you know, what you bring to the table and what you come with. So never felt any uh, sort of animosity or anything or disrespect because of my age. Uh, and I was on two very serious committees, the Financial Services Committee and the Intelligence Committee, um, and was always treated, uh, I would say, as an equal. What would you say would be the biggest difference that you saw between yourself and, you know, a lot older uh, congressmen? You know, anything specific? Um, yeah, I, the, the younger members of Congress uh, are less partisan, in, in my opinion. I mean, there's always exceptions, mm-hmm. but by and large, uh, there was, a, there was a, a handful of young members elected, Eric Swalwell and Kirsten Sinema and Joaquin Castro, Joe Kennedy, Seth Moulton, uh, a few on the Republican side, Trey Radel and a few others. And it was like hanging out with your friends. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, the Democrats have to win, the Republicans <laughs> have to lose, or there's some like, no, hey, let's agree. You know, we'd, we'd rather agree and get something done. And I think that was by virtue of the way we've all grown up, you know, sort of millennials. Or the, we care about solving problems. We're used to instant gratification. We're used to getting things done, solving problems, moving on to the next sort of subject. Uh, but also, since we were fresh, we weren't so dug in and entrenched in these these partisan battles that our colleagues that have been there 15, 20 years, that's what it's become to them is my party is going to beat yours. And that is more important than almost anything else to most people up there that have been around. So uh, the younger members uh, still, my, my friends there really do care about getting things done. Uh, but you can see how if you're there 15 years, 20 years, that might change. So do you think that's a function of being a millennial and a freshman in Congress? Or do you think if you were millennial and you'd stayed in Congress 20, 30 years, do you think you might have, not to say soured, but would, do you think your attitude would have changed to being a, a more partisan uh, affect? Or do you think that's just a generational divide? Uh, a little bit of both, but there is no doubt, uh, in my opinion, structural problems uh, in our country that have led to this, this divide that we're facing. And I'm actually uh, doing a, a town hall series across Florida with a former Republican member of Congress named David Jolly uh, to address just this because uh, our stance is, look, there's a lot of really important issues that have to be addressed in DACA and ACA fixes and, and immigration and um, tax reform. And the list goes on. But if you don't fix those structural problems first, you're not going to solve any of those. Right? We're not going to see any progress on any of the stuff in the coming months or years if we don't fix, fix the structural problems. I always point to, to six things in particular uh, that are particularly bad. Um, gerrymandering, huge problem, right? About 90% of congressional districts uh, are predetermined. They're going to be Republican or they're going to be Democratic. If you live in one of those and you're running for office, the only thing that matters is winning that primary. How do you win a primary? You go to the far right or far left. There's no incentive to go to the middle. In fact, you're disincentivized. So gerrymandering, uh, the money. I think we all know about the money in politics. It's worse than you can even imagine we could do a whole segment on that um it's not just the money and the amount it's the amount of time spent by members of congress raising money right hours and hours and hours uh, a week uh the media has become more and more partisan you know 30 years ago uh folks would turn on the evening news and here's what happened boom 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 they go to bed uh, and they'd all kind of watch the same thing now people watch you know fox or they watch msnbc or equally bad perhaps as they go to a certain website or an app that is telling them one view of an issue. So people are becoming much more partisan. Uh, and the next three things that I never would have realized before I got elected um, was number one, the lack of relationships. People don't know each other in Washington. 30 years ago, uh, members of Congress would move their families here. The kids went to school together or they'd go play golf on weekend. And it didn't matter. You're a Republican, I'm a Democrat. Who cares? You know, we got dinner together Friday. We're friends. <laughs> There's none of that anymore. People are racing home every single day, right Thursday after votes to go to a fundraiser, to go home and campaign, to do whatever you know else they got to do to get reelected, not getting to know each other. That's really important. Uh, the next one I never would have realized, and I learned this after being on the Intelligence Committee, um, was the cameras in all the committee rooms. Uh, right, I would have always said, and you know, still to this day, I want transparency. Right, I want people to know what's going on in government. The world needs to see it. The country needs to see it. But in the intelligence community, there's no cameras, obviously. There's no cell phones. There's no media. And uh, miraculously, people get along. All of a sudden, the partisan skin comes off and we got a problem. Let's solve it. Let's negotiate. Things happen. We we keep things moving in there. 
Once you put a camera in the room, all of a sudden people are playing a game to that camera because they know someone's watching. They know it could be used against them. So what it does, in fact, is drive the conversation deeper behind closed doors, uh, the real conversation, the real negotiation, because no one wants to do it in front of the lens. Uh, so that's an interesting effect of cameras and C-SPAN, actually, what it's done. Um, and, and then earmarks. Uh, this one's really interesting because I always heard about earmarks. I never served in the Congress when they were there. But right now, leadership has no ability to really rein in members of Congress, you know, their party and, and have any sort of leverage with them. So it's a free-for-all. You're almost incentivized now to go against party leadership. Mm. Uh, and that leads to things like a government shutdown that we had right. and different partisan groups being formed. I'm not advocating for, you know, bridges to nowhere or, or you know, the wasteful spending. Um, but what happened with earmarks when they got rid of them, that money is now being spent by the administration, whomever it is. The other day, what the heck does President Obama or or Trump know about St. Lucie County in Florida? How could they know? All the, right. I would rather a member of Congress who's actually going to be accountable to his or her voters be, if they do a bridge to nowhere, they're getting voted out. So those structural problems uh, to me are, are the, the one of the big things that, that's, you can see how any young, old person, whatever, elected to Congress now after 15 years, those structural things are just going to rip you apart. We'll be right back with Congressman Patrick Murphy. So our segment today is a political fun fact. Uh, if you remember from last season, our political fun fact was uh, Buju Suru, which is a Japanese word for to do the Bush thing when he threw up on the Japanese prime minister. Uh, and that was a big hit. So we decided to keep the political fun fact. Uh, so this one is brought to you by Richard Nixon. Uh, in 1968, President Nixon wanted a running mate who uh, he couldn't really compete with um, and who he was going to definitely dominate. Uh, as you remember, uh, Richard Nixon was a kind of Machiavellian politician, and uh, he was really thinking ahead here. Uh, so he chose little-known politician Spiro Agnew, uh, and the press didn't really know who he was at the time. Uh, so a couple of reporters at their, one of their first press gaggles uh, with uh, the President Nixon and Spiro Agnew, uh, a reporter asked Spiro Agnew uh, if Spiro Agnew was a disease, <laughs> and then another person suggested that that may be a type of egg. <laughs> I was like laughing because I'm reading it on the screen as you're saying it. And it just sounds more ridiculous. I just like, could you imagine? Okay. Spiro Agnew here has just really come up. You know, like he, he went from little known politician to vice presidential running mate to President Richard Nixon. And he's thinking, I have it in the bag. People are going to be writing the coolest profiles on me. They're going to find out all the amazing positions that I have. And someone goes, is that a disease? <laughs> like, like as much as being humbled by that, I'm sure he must have just gone home that day and just been like, what papers do I have to sign at the DMV to get my name changed? It's like, not a great name. Yeah, it's really not. Uh, like, they have a point. Anti shout out to his parents. <laughs> right? Uh, so that is today's... That was, that was harsh. <laughs> that was really harsh. I'm sure the Agnew family is quite nice, but Spiro Agnew... Does kind of sound like a disease. But you know who he is. <laughs> well, I do now because it's President Nixon. <laughs> and that was your political fun fact. So clearly Congress has a lot of issues. Uh, but in 2016, uh, the time rolls around and you decide to stick around Congress, around Capitol Hill, uh, and you made the decision to run for Senate. So what we want you to do is take us inside that that room you were in when you first made that decision. Who did you talk to? Who did you consult? What statistics did you look at? You know, What were the factors that went into that decision, and how did that sort of play out? Yeah. So uh, you know, a lot of that had to do with my frustration I just sort of expressed, yeah. Yeah. was uh, seeing the, the Congress, and, and again, humble and honored to serve there. But saw the writing on the wall uh, that there's just not a lot getting done here. And, I, and if I'm going to work 100 hours a week, I want to be in a position I can make a difference. Right? I want to be somewhere where I can really dig in. Right. And at least in the Senate, you got four years to do your job and maybe two to run for re-election. And that to me was, was appealing. Uh, so 
I knew I wanted to do something else and start looking at the timing with my, you know, sort of trusted team and advisors. And, um, you know, there's a lot of rumors about, you know, of course, Senator Rubio uh, running for president and it was going to be a presidential year uh, and start looking at all the candidates, you know, running and, you know, the time saying, wow, you know, Secretary Clinton's going to be a strong candidate, probably not a, you know, tough, um, you know, primary on that side at the time. We didn't think she'd have a tough opponent. And looking at, at, at my chances running in Florida, and if it made sense to run now in a presidential year versus running in 2018, mm-hmm. uh, maybe for governor or for, you know, if Bill Nelson wasn't going to run again or whatever that might be. And then saying, gosh, if you don't do it in 16 or 18, then you're done till like 2022. Mm-hmm. So then you're there. For, not that things don't pop up. You never know. But saying, wow, if you're going to do it, it makes sense to do it in a presidential so year because Democrats do better then. You're going to have an open seat. President, you know, Senator Rubio is running for president. You never have an open Senate seat in a presidential year. Like that just never happens in a big state like Florida. What an opportunity. Uh, and, you know, of course we knew Rubio could get back into the race. Mm-hmm. But I still, you know, thought, and heck to this day, if you look at the numbers, I mean, uh, the race at the end of the day was going to be more about the top of the ticket. And if we could get our name out there, uh, that we'd have a, have a pretty good, pretty good shot. So um, it you, became a clear decision to do it. Did, was there a certain person you called? You know, was there a person you said like, "Hey, I need your advice on this"? Uh, was there a single moment where you decided, "I'm getting in this race"? You know, it was a uh, it was about a two month process mm-hmm. in calling dozens and dozens of, of, of people, people I trusted in politics. I. Uh, I, mean, I could probably name a hundred of them all. You know, really starting off probably with my, my Florida Democratic uh, congressional colleagues, Ted Deutsch. I mm-hmm. uh, talked to Debbie Rossman Schultz about it and Alcee Hastings. Um, there was a, a, a really interesting meeting in Alcee Hastings' office um, in, I think, in December or January before I announced uh, that. We, we had these, you know, these sort of meetings that we do every month or two months around the Florida delegation. We talk about the Everglades and we talk about, you know, any sort of Florida issue. And Alcee Hastings kind of, you know, looks around the room I mean, out of nowhere and says, we got a Senate race coming up in, you know, 2016. Who's running? And I didn't, you know, I didn't say a word. I guess it crossed my mind, but I wasn't that serious about it. And, uh, you know, Ted Deutsch, well, I don't know, maybe. And, and uh, Alcee says something, Lois Frankel was there, and Joe Garcia was there at the time, and uh, I think Gwen Graham might have been in the room, and uh, everyone's kind of, oh, I don't know. And, and uh, Debbie Rossman Schultz said, you know, she was maybe thinking about it, and Alcee basically looked at me and pointed and said, um, you're the guy, you're doing this, wow. you're running for the Senate. I was like, whoa, kind of gave me chills, because we hadn't like, talked about it like some planned thing. And he became, we were always pretty tight, but he became much more of a mentor at that point and, and person to, to, to lean on um, an advisor along the way. But I talked to donors, I talked to uh, the press, I talked, you know, that I trusted and right. you know, off, off the record and uh, a very group of people. And I'd say 99% of people thought it was a really good idea to do it. So bring us inside um, the typical room for Murphy for Senate. Uh, hmm. And I know you had a big debate against Rubio once he decided to jump in. Um, so talk to us a bit about how you went through the process of preparing for that debate, especially in, in terms of making sure the lines that you hit him with were going to play and, and defending your strategy. Uh, because when we were talking before, you said uh, you sort of want to frame Rubio in the same bucket as Trump, and you sort of want to marry the two together and run against both of them uh, with your campaign. So how did you go about preparing to defend that, knowing Rubio might attack you for that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and how did you go about finding ways to counterattack? Yeah. Uh, uh... So debates are, are interesting because uh, I'd never, I wasn't like in the debate club. I was never, <laughs> you know, I was never that nerds. political. Yeah, those and, nerds, right? No, no, no. Just in I school, say that as a former debater yeah. in high school. Yeah, okay. so. <laughs> I just wasn't like all that political in high school or college. I wasn't in the debate club, so I didn't have, this, you know, wealth of knowledge to, to, to pull from. Uh, I thought I had pretty good grasp of the issues. But um, when you do these debates, you know, it's interesting, both the ones against Alan West and then Rubio. Your staff will prepare you a hundred-page, you know, document uh, of, of all the issues that you got to be prepared for. Oh man, just all of but, them. every single one. <laughs> yeah, but at the end of the day, there's two things. You basically know, okay, it's an hour debate. And, you know, you get like ninety <sighs> seconds to respond. There's a commercial break. You boil it down. There's gonna be like twelve questions. Mm-hmm. So you can figure out with really good certainty 
nine, maybe 10 of those questions, they're going to ask about Obamacare. They're going to ask about the economy. They're going to ask about foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. So you can pretty much know what they're going to be. But the tough part for me, and I think for a lot of people, was condensing all the material, all the knowledge in your head about Obamacare into 90 seconds. Right. And that's not just 90 seconds because what your debate coach, you know, whatever, will tell you is you can't just answer the question. You got to go and attack. Because what, especially in a Senate debate, very few people tune in and watch it and very few mm-hmm. minds are changed unless there's like a major mistake. It's really the story written the next day by all the news outlets uh, that dictates it. So a lot of the practice and, and what happened in these you know debate practices and rooms was always mm-hmm. making sure that you were spending, say, 45 seconds on the on the question asked or the issue and then spending time on the attack mm-hmm. to make sure that you got a dig, that you got a punch and that you got some flip flop that Rubio might have had in there. That was another thing is like I knew we knew as a team the attacks that he was going to lob at us. We knew uh, what the you know commercials had been, what the messages they were sending out. Uh, so we knew what to prepare for in those attacks and we're able to get some sort of pivots yeah. prepared. And if you watch the debates, Rubio's answers are like identical in the two debates we had right. and all his, his speeches and interviews. It's just like a machine, like boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. He just repeats the same thing, regurgitates it. So we kind of knew it was coming. And there were some ones that we knew we had to hit him on that were just so obvious. Number one for him was him saying he didn't like the job and he was never going to come back to the Senate. Mm. And I think his quote was 10,000 times, I'll tell you I'm not going to do it. And then he did it. There he is <laughs> it was like, stage. well, wait a minute, you know, come on. Uh, his terrible voting record, right? Always, you know, putting Florida second to his own political career. We wanted to just continue to drive that home. And then, you know, as the election went on, it became clear, which is funny to say now, um, looking at the polls, that uh, we had to tie him to Donald Trump. And he was terrified to be too close to Trump, but no, he didn't want to lose that base. So he was in this really precarious situation. So we want to do everything we could to, to marry those two together. Right. Uh, because that's what every single poll told us, that there's no way Donald Trump's going to win Florida if Rubio's with him. And if you look back, like Rubio didn't appear with Trump anywhere in the state. He always kept his distance. So we wanted to ask Rubio, are you going to vote for him? Like, tell me who you're supporting in this race. You called him all these bad names when you're running against him. And now you're going to, you didn't trust him in the mili- you know, with the nuclear codes. And now you're going to vote for him? Really? Right. Like the hypocrisy there. Um, and, and then I wanted to get Rubio to pledge that he would serve a six year term because if you're wind, you know, the thinking was Hillary's going to win. Mark is going to run against her in four years from now. So guarantee us you're going to do a full term at least. Mm. So there were like these zingers and these lines that we'd rehearse and drive these points home. In hindsight, it's almost funny because of course, Trump ended up winning Florida. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that kind of all backfired. I don't know if I was helping Rubio out along the way <laughs> about this whole Trump thing. Uh, but look, it was funny because, you know, Rubio's polls, the Republican polls, the Democratic polls, all were saying the same thing. Right. And they were all wrong by about, you know, six points. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were pretty far off. And, wow. uh, you know, whether people admit it to, to you or not, um, the, the polls matter and dictates a lot of messaging. Um, because you, as many people as you get out there and meet and talk to, you still got to try to get that, you know, sense of, of the whole state. And uh, they were wrong this year. It's incredible. Yeah. And wow, I didn't know how much preparation went into a debate. Hundred pages. Yeah. Hundred pages is a lot. I don't. I'm I, hesitant I, to read hundred pages for class. So <laughs> we'll be right back with Congressman Patrick Murphy. Our Politicians as Real People segment is a bit of a throwback for this week. It comes to us in a tweet from Senator John McCain of Arizona, and he was hanging out with his buddies, Senator Lindsey Graham and former Senator Joe Lieberman during the August recess out uh, in Arizona. The three of them went on some nature walks, took hikes, uh, hung out. It's a really cool picture, so I uh, encourage you to check out the tweet if you haven't seen it yet. Pretty much, it's the future that Aaron Christian and I expect to live in, so that's something to look forward to. Hashtag goals. Pretty adorable. What do you yeah. think they talk about? I feel like real, anything real but politics. Things. Yeah, they anything talk about, but like, politics. How the, eight, or, uh, how the Diamondbacks are doing compared to where's John McCain's wearing this like Birds of Central Arizona T-shirt. They're all wearing like baseball oh, caps. Joe, Joe Lieberman's rocking like a new pair like, of Skechers shoes. It's so cute. It's pretty adorable, honestly. They really are. You know, 
Diamondbacks doing pretty well. Seeing you talk about that actually reminds me, and also being in Hannah's uh, office reminds me, there's a picture right here of the three Kennedy brothers. And I I feel like that's a beautiful parallel uh, in terms of, you know, three people that just, you know, came up in politics together, really, really in love. Um, But it also reminds me of the debate that we have at geopolitics. Which is the most attractive Kennedy brother? I firmly, I firmly am in Bobby's camp, but I can Let see, me see the picture. Hold I can on. see an argument for Ted. No, if you okay, first off, the wrong answer is JFK. Yeah, JFK like, is incorrect. There is there isn't necessarily a right answer, but there is a wrong. Is strictly one. looks or like Str- I mean, because there's power dynamics. Strictly looks to like strictly appearance. President, it's Bobby. Bobby, definitely Bobby. So what's going to happen here is that uh, we're going to play a student hot take. Her name is Sophia, and we pose her a simple question. As a millennial, do you see Congress as an effective avenue for public service or meaningful change? I am a member of a committee at Georgetown called the D.C. and Federal Relations Committee. And something, I know it sounds really pretentious, but something that we've been working on um, this week, just in the past week, has been getting people to voice their support for DACA. And so I've been tabling for the past like four days all over campus in the cafeteria in like Red Square where people walk through all the time. And I've been getting people to sign letters to their congressmen and their representatives um, in support of this, trying to get the DREAM Act passed. And so I think that's been like a really inspiring thing for me to do not necessarily because I think anything is going to get done I don't think Congress is effective at all and I don't pretend to think that they're going to pass a bill that will protect dreamers but I think it's been really important for people to know that they can voice their opinions and that they have someone in these really high levels of government that is representing them so I even like I've been looking up representatives, like people don't necessarily know what their name is. Or um, yesterday, someone thought that they only had one senator and was like really surprised to learn that they had two. And that was actually a really cool thing for me to be able to tell them. So I think it's been really interesting to teach people about Congress. Do I think they're effective? No. But do I think it's still inspiring and reassuring to have yes i would never run for congress ever in a million years but i hope to one day help get people into congress that i think could make an actual change and that could like represent us more effectively so instead of like vying for money or power they're more interested in actual issues that they're constituents care about uh, well first uh it is so important that people participate and that's one of the problems that not enough people are participating not enough people are voting when you have 15 percent turnout in a primary that's leading to this problem uh, i used to get a printout every single week in my office about all the letters emails calls we got and what the issues people were talking about if all of a sudden 90 percent of the phone calls are about one issue you better believe that member of Congress, or in any good office at least, is going to respond and think about that issue a little closer. And even if it's on the other side of what they might believe, uh, they say, well, hmm, maybe I should think about this a little bit. That's what my district is. And that's that sort of age-old question in Congress. Do you represent what you believe? Are you going to get up there and vote for your values or your districts? Because mm-hmm. sometimes they don't always align, right? And if you're in a swing district, there might be some, some questions there. Those letters, those emails are, are really, really important. The key is to get more people to do it. So tell yeah. her to, to get a bigger group of people uh, to, to all send that same sort of note into their member of Congress. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into our final segment. We got to take it really quick because we don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, but we have something we call a lightning round. Uh, so we're going to ask you three quick questions. Okay. We have like 20, 30 seconds max. Okay. Uh, just give us the first thing that comes up the top of your head. I was the first. Did you ever get lost in the halls of Congress? No, never got lost. That's impressive. I did a I've, semester uh, on the Hill. And I, we got lost I all the time. I randomly have a very good sense of direction. So I I'm impressed. There you <laughs> go. Uh, next question. Your favorite restaurant on Capitol Hill? Oh, my gosh. 
any place I didn't have a fundraiser at. <laughs> <laughs> the most obscure, dimly lit. Yeah, exactly. away from everyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you end up going to the same, like, three restaurants, you know, on the hill all the time. So I like going toward, like, 14th Street and mm-hmm. just somewhere I can put a baseball hat on and, <laughs> like, not be seen. <laughs> Love it. Uh, and in 30 seconds, describe for us your most memorable moment while serving in Congress. Oh, you know, so many uh, interesting moments, you know, being on the intelligence committee, some of the travel, uh, going to Af- Afghanistan with Michelle Bachman was awfully memorable. But as far as being in the Congress uh, specifically, was uh, one evening that we had the, the sit-in right after the Pulse shooting. And that was an experience that uh, kind of still gives me chills thinking about that it was, a, it was an organic movement. That wasn't something we planned. It was a bunch of members of Congress, Democrats, uh, that were so passionately mad that Republicans wouldn't bring a vote up on this no-fly, no-buy, that you, you couldn't fly in a plane because you were deemed unsafe, that you couldn't buy an automatic or semi-automatic weapon. I mean, give me a break. So common sense. We couldn't even get a vote on it. Right. It led to this you know, passionate movement. We literally sat on the floor, wouldn't let anything else happen. And then the support we started getting. I mean, we started getting like food sent in from like around the country stay we're gonna feed you you know whatever just stay so that was a really cool moment where where all the democrats at least were just like sleeping on the floor talking all night um periscoping it yeah yeah. breaking all the rules of of (laughs) quorum on the the floor yeah uh well that that about wraps up our time okay Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you all congressman patrick Merck, everyone and uh thanks for being here and we'll see you all uh semester long here as a fellow geopolitics yeah two to three thirty two to three thirty on mondays yep check it out we'll see you there All right. Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of season two of Fly on the Wall. We're glad you guys tuned in. This is going to be, I think, our best season. Now, granted, we've only had one other before <laughs> this. So every season will be subsequently our best season. But yeah, like, 100%. I really feel good about this. We already are kicking off with a former member of Congress. Up next week, uh, we can't tell you who it is yet, but we have an amazing yeah, amazing guest. He, was, he gave a great interview. We actually already did it. So uh, we know for a fact you'll love it. No leaks here on Fly on the Wall. No leaks. We do not leak. I'll hunt those leakers out. (laughs) But in the meantime, stay in touch with us on social media, at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. Come up, say hi to us on campus if we're out tabling or flyering. Um, Tell your friends, you know, stop by the geopolitics office. It's an exciting time of year. subscribe on iTunes. Yeah. Oh, also, uh, this month... And pizza is. I was about to say that. Ah, too bad. It's me now. Oh, <laughs> this month and pizza. Oh, we're free. Uh, <laughs> 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 this month and pizza is buy one get one free if you use the code GU Politics. So, uh, what? And, order and if you order online, so you're welcome for getting you pizza. Uh, that's what fly on the wall. We're just does. looking out for you here, guys. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Have a great week, guys. Love you.